Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is John Hoffman. John is a PhD candidate at Washington's George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. Here at Arab Digest, we make a determined effort to provide a platform for young, up-and-coming scholars and analysts. So I'm delighted to have John Hoffman on the podcast. John, welcome to Arab Digest. Well, thank you for having me on, Bill. Um, Now, first of all, let me congratulate you on the article you wrote recently for Foreign Policy, which uh, caught my eye. A thoughtful piece of analysis titled, The United States Doesn't Need to Recommit to the Middle East. In it, you commented on reports that the U.S. and the UAE are moving toward a formal defense agreement, and you argued it's a bad idea. Now, tell our listeners, John, why you think it's a bad idea. In the article, the piece was primarily a response to reports and rumors suggesting that President Biden has already sent a draft agreement to the UAE, which was accompanied by a trip by White House Middle East coordinator Brett McGurk to discuss a formal defense agreement that would ultimately contain U.S. security guarantees for Abu Dhabi. Shortly before the article was published, U.S. Representatives Rohana and Ilhan Omar introduce amendments to next year's defense spending authorization bill that would slow or block such agreements and require Congress to weigh in, which really lent credence to these rumors and these reports. And leading up to Biden's trip to the Middle East, several in D.C. began arguing in favor of such guarantees, with some arguing it should be extended to Saudi Arabia as well. So the the piece was trying to tackle all of this leading up in the days before Biden's trip. And and I argued that an increase in U.S. security commitments to the Middle East, whether formal or informal, would not only violate existing U.S. laws designed to prevent the United States from providing security assistance and security guarantees to governments with abysmal human rights records, but also that it would be strategically nonsensical in that it would really only advance the interests of actors that are contrary to the interests of the United States. John, can you give me a little more detail on these U.S. laws that would be violated by the signing of a formal defense agreement? Of course. So uh, beginning first with the legalities, the United States is prohibited from providing security assistance or security guarantees to actors that are engaged in gross human rights abuses. This is stipulated in two different laws, Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act and the Leahy Laws. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, both who the article is primarily directed towards, are very much so engaged in such gross human rights abuses and are actually some of the most autocratic governments in the entire world. Uh, Both are rated below Russia by uh, Freedom House. Their their engagement in these activities are are widespread and and well-recognized. And these activities, you know, are are not just at home, but they, you know, support an array of autocratic actors throughout the region. These transnational networks of repression are quite prominent. And both Saudi Arabia and the UAE have also violated a host of domestic U.S. laws. With Saudi Arabia, you know, the former Twitter employees that were charged in 2019 for spying on behalf of the Saudi government. 
um, Thomas Barack in the United States here. I know we, we're, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but also the three uh, former Intel officials who pled guilty to working uh, illegally for the United Arab Emirates within the United States. So there's a host of laws that are being violated here. But also from a strategic perspective, the move really risks cementing Washington's commitment to the primary underlying structural problems in the Middle East, which I argue is the authoritarian status quo. And not only does it cement our commitment to this status quo, but it yields virtually no benefits for the United States. Autocracies being inherently unstable due to the illegitimate nature of their rule. And there's a great deal of academic literature, policy literature, suggesting that you know, they build less reliable and durable alliances. And you know, rules, treaties, and laws do not mean much when the authority, the authority of these rulers is absolute, you know, so I argue in the piece that, you know, concerned solely with regime preservation and power projection, the governments in the Middle East are the ones responsible for the region's political, economic, and social underdevelopment, because they manipulate these resources and institutions to further the interests of narrow elites. And while maybe from the outside, they may present this facade of stability. I think what is is encapsulates this so perfectly is what's happening in Iran right now. While they may present this aura of stability and everything under control in a moment's notice, because these policies are designed to distract from underlying grievances. Yes, and as you say, in a moment's notice, things can it can erupt. At a moment's notice. You're right to point out Iran, where this young woman was basically murdered by the morality police and uh, protests happening all across the country, uh, led by women uh, burning their hijabs and, and protesting. And But look, let me, um, I want to ask you this about Biden, because when he moved into uh, the White House, there were high hopes that he was going to bring substance and nuance back to U.S. relations in MENA particularly after the four years of Trump's chaotic transactional approaches. And, and Biden assembled a, a strong and veteran team. Let me just run through it uh, for our listeners' sake. Anthony Blinken as Secretary of State, Brett McGurk, who you, who you mentioned as Middle East Coordinator, Robert Malley on Iran and JCPOA, Dana Struhl as Pentagon Senior Military Advisor, Jake Sullivan, National Security Council Head, Tim Lenderking as his Yemen lead. You know, so much promise, but so little delivered. Do you think that's a fair assessment? So I, I would say, from my point of view, that I think these individuals were actually a recipe for the sustainment of the status quo, especially given the very establishment backgrounds of several of them. And despite the campaign rhetoric from Biden, you know, he said, you know, he would make Saudi Arabia pariah. He would end these blank checks uh, for Trump's quote unquote favorite dictator, uh, <laughs> Abdel Fattah el-Sisi in Egypt. Uh, the campaign rhetoric was great, but his administration has really showed that he is more hellbent on pursuing status quo policies in the region. And his team, you know, these individuals on his team have long embraced establishment policies in the Middle East, and they continue to adhere to the fundamentals 
of U.S. Middle East policy that have dominated for decades and that have frankly been rather disastrous. The approach of Biden and his team are rooted in continuity, not change, and really amount to the doubling down on decades of status quo policies. And I think what encapsulates this best is, is his trip to the Middle East. But I think the, the person on his team that really epitomizes this is, is Brett McGurk himself. And Brett McGurk has long embraced Washington's problematic regional partners as pillars of supposed stability. And he has strong ties with these rulers overseas. I would encourage listeners to go check out a really fascinating deep dive into McGurk and his impact on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and kind of how, how he epitomizes this. It was an article written by Akmar Shahid Ahmed for the Huffington Post earlier this year. It's a great piece. And, and it really reaches the same conclusion that I reach, which is we cannot expect U.S. Middle East policy to change so long as the individual's directing such policies continue to be committed to the status quo. Yeah, one of my one of my colleagues, uh, Michael Stevens, referred to uh, the Biden team as Obama 2.0. Yes. <laughs> now, another thing about Joe Biden, uh, and you've touched on this a little bit, you know, when he came in, he spoke about the values led foreign policy and many in the human rights sector took that to mean he would challenge the Saudis, the Emiratis, even the Israelis over human rights abuses. Uh, naive to think that human rights would trump security and weapon sales. But, but what do you make of that pledge? I mean, Joe Biden is the ultimate pragmatist, been in politics in Washington for 50 years. Should he have committed at all to a values-led foreign policy? So regarding the values-led foreign policy, I know myself and, and others, you know, maybe never really expected him to fully embrace a so-called values-led foreign policy. But I think this this framing that and many have framed it in this way kind of masks how in the Middle East values and strategic interests of the United States actually overlap. The governments in the Middle East supported by the United States, like we mentioned a little earlier, are some of the most autocratic governments in the world. Not only do they fiercely repress their own populations, but they engage in sophisticated forms of transnational repression designed to target regime critics anywhere and everywhere. But, you know, it's not just Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates like we have been talking about. It's Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, Bahrain, and so on. They're all engaged in this behavior. As is Israel, whose project of apartheid is it's continuing to subjugate Palestinians and break international law with impunity, as evidenced most recently by the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla. But even if certain circles in D.C. say, oh, we need to overlook such behavior because it's, it's these relationships are necessary in order to advance our quote-unquote strategic interests, such an argument doesn't really stand when critically examined. These actors do not share our interests and have repeatedly pursued policies at odds with the objectives of the United States, nor has our support for these actors really provided us with any strategic leverage. As I talk about in the foreign policy article, this has been on full display following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
whether it be pertaining to oil, enforcement of sanctions, uh, condemnation of Moscow's invasion, etc. These regional actors are aware that the status quo in the Middle East is unsustainable without the power of the United States, which is why they seek to pressure Washington and desire a formal security agreement, which would codify into law uh, American support for these regimes. So in the Middle East, you know, I would argue that our values and our strategic interests can complement one another. But this requires, again, a fundamental overhaul to our current approach in the region. Yes, and one that has has not really emerged yet. Um, You know, if you think about human rights, human rights could be regarded as as one of the pillars of democracy. And yet, as you quite rightly point out, America time and time again turns a blind eye to really extreme human rights abuses in the Middle East and the Gulf. Absolutely. Now, Mohammed bin Salman, speaking of, uh, of those who exercise a degree of repression that uh, is, is, is quite astonishing, um, he didn't turn up at the Queen's funeral, either because his own people advised against it or perhaps it was a quiet message from the UK government. Apparently he was planning to, but as it turned out, he was a no-show. Now listen, John, I, I wonder, do you see him coming to Washington anytime soon? He has his detractors on both sides of the house, but are there MAGA Republicans and commentators like Tucker Carlson who wouldn't have a problem with Mohammed bin Salman showing up in Washington and perhaps uh, doing a a repeat of his uh, American tour before the killing, of course, of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi? No, that's a great point. Personally, I don't see him coming to Washington anytime soon. It, it, it seems the majority of commentators and media and even many politicians have kind of recognized the fruitlessness of Biden's recent trip to the Middle East. So I don't think the administration is going to risk further embarrassment by inviting MBS to Washington. Um, from MBS's point of view, I think he would be apprehensive at the current time, giving existing lawsuits against him and the, his lack of sovereign immunity. But if someone such as Trump re-entered the White House, who obviously doesn't really have much respect for the rule of law, then perhaps MBS would feel more comfortable tra- traveling to the U.S. while still only the crown prince and not king. But for now, I, I don't see it happening with Joe Biden. But someone like uh, Tucker Carlson, I mean, he's, he's gone out on a limb in regards to Putin, as, as have several other Fox commentators and various uh, elements of the mega Republican Party. Uh, do they have a view on Mohammed bin Salman or are they keeping uh, quiet about it at this point? I, I think they've kept relatively quiet about it for the time being. I think everything right now on Fox and, and Tucker Carlson is all uh, Putin, Putin, Putin. <laughs> um, but I think if somebody such as Trump re-entered the White House, then I think MBS would feel much more comfortable traveling to the United States because he knows ultimately Trump would not hold him accountable for for anything. Indeed, uh, because Trump's first foreign visit was to Riyadh and uh, yeah. an extraordinary picture of him touching that globe with, uh, with the CC <laughs> and with King Salman. Uh, 
etched in my, my mind, as I'm sure it is in yours and many other people's. Um, I want to come back to your article again uh, and to the UAE. Uh, you, you've mentioned this already in our podcast and you did uh, in, the, uh, in the article. Tom Barak, uh, confident of President Trump, he's been charged with acting as an unregistered foreign agent on behalf of the UAE. Now, jury selection for the trial is now underway. As the trial begins and details emerge, do you think Biden's attitude towards the UAE might shift? And a second question, how damaging do you think the trial might be to uh, Donald Trump? So un- unfortunately, I don't think it will impact the calculus of Biden or his team because they remain supporters of the status quo in the region, which relies upon autocrats uh, in autocracy such as the UAE. And Biden has continued to show that he, that he will bend a knee to such actors and not hold them accountable. But just because the administration lacks the will to hold them accountable, I I don't think this means that this issue should be glossed over. Uh, Abu Dhabi sought to directly interfere in domestic U.S. politics in what really should be considered a direct assault on U.S. democracy. U.S. prosecutors allege that Barack was directed by Emirati officials at the highest levels. They specifically mentioned Mohammed bin Zayed. And Barack pushed, allegedly, according to U.S. prosecutors, pushed UAE preferred candidates for cabinet level positions in the new administration, such as Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, CIA director, et cetera. And like we mentioned a little bit earlier, this is in addition to three former U.S. intelligence operatives admitting last year to working as cyber spies for the UAE and hacking into various computer networks in the US. And also let's not forget about the recent arbitrary detention of American citizen and lawyer, Asim Ghafoor. Yeah, Ghafoor is a US civil rights attorney. He was uh, detained while in transit, uh, charged and convicted of money laundering, a charge that uh, critics of the UAE say is bogus. Uh, Ghafoor was released after paying a fine, and he's now back in the U.S. But as these actions demonstrate, the last thing the United States should be considering is providing such actor, such an actor with a formal security guarantee. But it, it really seems like this is not impacting at all Biden's calculus when it comes to the UAE or the region in general. In terms of what this might mean for Trump, Again, I, I don't think it's going to mean much for Donald Trump. Trump has engaged in so many illegal activities, and not only has he continued to get away with them, but his supporters continue to embrace him regardless. And uh, unfortunately, it, it seems like this probably won't have any impact on the strategic calculus of Biden, and Trump just seems to be ab- above the law almost. Indeed, indeed, uh, above the law, even as the cases pile up upon him. Um, exactly. <laughs> but look, uh, 2024, not that far away. Uh, Donald Trump not yet declared his candidacy, but if he does and he wins either by skullduggery or perhaps legitimately, what do you think will happen to US foreign policy in the Middle East? So I think what you'll see if Trump comes back is 
a return of the much more overt support for these uh, troublesome actors in the region. You know, Trump embraced them, made no, uh, you know, did not try to hide his embrace of these actors, did not try to couch it in any sort of, you know, rhetoric for, oh, we'll support democracy or, you know, we're supporting these actors and encouraging them to change or anything like that. They've certainly uh, maintained their ties with the Trump team, such as Saudi Arabia investing $2 billion in Kushner's investment firm or Trump's Saudi-backed golf tournament. Yes, uh, $2 billion to Kushner's investment firm and that uh, breakaway golf tournament played at uh, Trump clubs. Exactly. But would we actually see a considerable shift in policy? I don't really think so. In in many ways, Trump's actions in the Middle East were the culmination of decades of failed U.S. foreign policy in the region. Though Biden talked a big game on the campaign trail, he hasn't done anything to reverse any of the controversial regional policies pursued by his predecessor. And he's doubled down on many of Trump policies in the Middle East, such as the Abraham Accords, weapon sales, and so on. Perhaps if Trump returns, the Saudis and the Emiratis may push Trump harder for a formal security guarantee than they've been pushing Biden. But this would, if if the law still applies to Donald Trump, uh, this would still require a vote in Congress because only Congress can ratify treaties. If Trump wins, I think what you'll see is a continuation of status quo policies just less rhetoric about rights or democracies that you currently hear from the Biden's team, but which ultimately fall on deaf ears due to the policies that they continue to pursue. So, John, uh, I suppose you describe this as a continuum of failure. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great way to sum it up. But uh, what about the Abraham Accords? I mean, Trump did move the needle. That needle was frozen for such a long time. Now, you can argue that uh, whether he moved it in a good way or a bad way, that's debatable. Certainly from the point of view of the Palestinians, it was very much in a bad way. But uh, he did move that needle. Yeah. So when it comes to the Abraham Accords, what I would say is U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East for decades has been grounded in two foundational pillars. The first pillar is the myth of authoritarian stability. And and what I mean by this is select support for different autocrats in the Middle East rooted in the idea that they are the ones who can best advance Washington's interests. The second pillar is unwavering support for the state of Israel. The Abraham Accords merged these two pillars. They merged the idea of support for select autocrats and unwavering support for Israel. And now the the barrier to merging these two pillars has historically been the issue of Palestine. But as these Arab autocrats have demonstrated, these Abraham Accords were designed in order to squash popular Arab opinion but also squash the plight of the Palestinians and completely abrogate it. The the Abraham Accords are a top-down normalization, an elite-level normalization that is designed to sideline popular opinion in the plight of the Palestinians 
in order to push for greater security and political coordination. And I, I would argue because the Israelis, just like the Emiratis or the Bahrainis or in the Saudis, they had a vested interest in the preservation of the status quo, both the in terms of the regional balance of power, but also its autocratic nature. So I, I would say, you know, these accords, uh, I, I heard I heard one individual refer to them as the, uh, not the Abraham Accords, but the Autocracy Apartheid record, Accords. And I, I think that's the best way to sum it up because th that's ultimately what this represents, a more joint effort now whereby Israel's project of apartheid is intimately connected with the autocratic governance of these Arab actors. Fascinating, John. Um, and I look forward to your next uh, foreign policy article. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was John Hoffman a PhD candidate specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam at Washington's George Mason University. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 95,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, and other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA experts, both seasoned analysts and up-and-comers like John. If you'd like a free trial of the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees, and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you're a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask for your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Music